Praise the Lord. Amen. Uh, before we get started, I'm going to dismiss uh, the youth hyphen class. If you're 12 to 21, uh, go away. Amen. You're not welcome up here anymore. we got uh, cookies and ice cream and pop and cake and everything else downstairs. Right? <laughs> We get a biscuit. (laughs) Hard tack. (laughs) Amen. The second thing we're going to do before we start is uh, we prayed for my dad a while ago. Uh, You guys know he had uh, open heart surgery, a triple bypass, and uh, uh, apparently it was kind of touch and go for a while. And, uh, well, I told him that we were praying for him, and, and he wrote this letter to the church. I want to read that. He says this, Greetings to my brothers and sisters at Calvary Apostolic Church. I didn't mean to be so late in writing, but it's been slow getting back to some form of normalcy. Besides, my writing has never been that good, and the rest has taken a setback. God hears and God sees. God heard your prayers and witnessed your raised hands. He responded. It was close. Thank you all for what you've done. You know, it's not very difficult for me to imagine the angel of death standing near and God telling him, not yet. Thank you, Jesus. God bless you all in Christ, Bob. I must add this. I've been told that the surgeon said that without this, I would have had three days to live. Who timed this? Amen. So proud of my dad. Amen. <laughs> We're glad that he's he's made a a miraculous recovery. He's doing fantastic. Praise God. Thank you Jesus. Thank you Jesus. All right, let's all stand. In the army, they always prepare to prepare to stand, stand. I'm just going to throw it out there. Stand. <laughs> Amen. All right, let's call out to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is His service. We are His people. Amen. Whatever He wants to do here, that's what we want. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. You're a mighty, glorious, wondrous Savior. And we look to You with expectancy, with hope and with faith that You are going to do everything that You desire to do in our midst here today. That all of Your heart... All of your mind would be manifest in these services today. We seek you, thou most high God, and we submit ourselves wholly and completely to you to accomplish your will and your heart in these services. I pray, Lord, that you would minister, that you would bless, that you would save, that you would restore, that you would provide whatever the needs are in this place today and bind us together as one as we enter into your presence to minister unto the Lord our God today with worship and with praise and with thanksgiving of heart. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would receive the word of truth with joy and with gladness, that we would do and not hear only. Above all else, Lord, that your name would be glorified in this place today. We worship you and we praise you. We laud and we magnify you and we thank you for all that you are about to do here today. These things we ask in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated today. Amen. We're continuing our lesson, uh, God's Word for Life. 
Last week, we talked about the rich young ruler. How he had two things going for him. Uh, the first thing he had going for him was he appeared to have an intense interest in spiritual matters. That's always good. That's always good. And that he recognized that Jesus had the answer to his question. Amen. Or at least he was one person that had an answer. In any case, he sought Jesus to get this question answered. What lack I yet? Of course, he had some things going against him as well. How like you and I. Amen. He loved money, possessions, power, some combination, maybe all the above, maybe something else added into the mix. But he did it, I think, ignorantly. I think he thought that those things demonstrated that he was blessed of God. The more possessions I have, the more God loves me. That seemed to be the case as you look through the Old Testament Scriptures. Abraham, Solomon, amen. Those that God loved, God blessed. If you look at the Mosaic Law, when God pronounced the blessings on the children of Israel, He's going to bless the fruit of the womb and of the store. And, and you're going to go all one way. Now it's the enemies. Anyway. But everything was going to be blessed. The fruit of the field is going to be blessed. Everything's going to be blessed if you serve me, if you keep my commandments. And so that kind of, that kind of trickled down. He thought that those things gave him meaning, fulfillment, freedom. But Jesus is trying to point out to him they give the exact opposite. They bind. They restrict. Revelation 3.17 again says, Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. That's the attitude most people take. But they don't know that they're wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. We think that having all of these things is the meaning of life. We think that the more money I have in the bank, the more secure I am. We think that the more stuff I have, the better life I'm going to be able to enjoy. But that's not true at all. If I keep things in perspective, I can enjoy those things. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with having stuff. But if that's my focus, if that's what brings me my enjoyment, if that's what I'm focused on, pursuing with, with my time and my energy, they lead to ruin. They don't fulfill. They do the exact opposite. Jesus, we see He loved the man enough to tell him the truth. That He needed to be delivered from the tyranny of things. That He needed to redirect His affections on things above. Rather, on things beneath. Jesus wasn't calling Him to do something esoterically or, or sitting up in an ivory tower and think this is the best thing for humanity. Although He certainly could have. But He was doing that Himself, wasn't He? He had already given up everything. He stepped off the throne of glory to wrap Himself in flesh and experience life as you and I. Jesus always leads from the front. Jesus placed spiritual things ahead of temporal. He placed servitude ahead of position or title. Amen. Looking at our daily devotionals. Day one, we see that there are no good people, only a good God. Again, I don't have time to, to go into the whole spiel, but you put anybody, you put anybody in the right circumstances at the right time for enough time, 
And they are capable of any atrocity you can imagine. That means you and me. That's our sin nature. There are no depths to the level of depravity we can arrive at, given enough time and the right circumstances. That's where we come to the Lord. We understand that we're flesh, and we're never going to be good until we enter heaven. As human beings, we will fail and we will fall short. Now, when I say that, of course, I I don't mean that we need to adopt a cavalier attitude towards sin. We don't need to excuse sin in our life. Well, I'm just human. That's what I do. No, not at all. Sin is still sin, folks. Sin is what cursed all of God's creation. Sin is what brought death, disease, famine, suffering, every evil imaginable into this world. Sin is what put Jesus on the cross. We cannot adopt a cavalier or or some kind of a uh, scholarly academic attitude towards sin. It's visceral, it's real, it's ugly, and it's evil. It destroys, it kills. But we're human folks. I cannot do enough good works. I cannot do enough good deeds to be worthy of Jesus Christ, of His salvation. I can't. I need a Savior. And so when I sin, when I fall, when I fail, I have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is faithful and He is just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Because I need a Savior. Amen. Day two. What legacy are we going to leave behind when we die? What have we laid aside for our children, our families? I hope it's more than money. I hope it's more than stuff. I hope the legacy that we have left behind for our family, our children, our spouse, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Truth. The truth we find in Scripture. What will our eulogy contain about us? Have you ever considered that? I have. Should the Lord tarry, I'm going to be pushing daisies. That's the way of all flesh. Sad but true. And on that day, people are going to be reading over me. I hope someone comes. (laughs) I hope someone's going to be there. Reading over me. Eulogizing? What are they going to say about me? Have you thought about that? I, <laughs> I hope not. We need to value those things that we can take with us. These things down here, they're going to stay here. I'm laying up in store for someone else. When I die, someone else is going to enjoy the fruit of my labor. But there are things I can take with me. Those are the things I need to value in my life. Day three. The teachings of Jesus are often counterintuitive. We've spoken on this before. Not because Jesus is backwards or His teachings are backwards, but because our understanding is. We're backwards. When we come to the Lord, we think we've got everything figured out. This is what means everything. And the spiritual, that's, that's out there. That's something that people accept by faith. You know what faith is, right? You know how people uh, define faith? Believing something you know isn't true. 
That's how most people define faith. Believe something you know isn't true. Is that faith? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I've demonstrated before, I hold this to be true, that without faith, without faith in in the God of the Bible, you can't understand anything else. Faith is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of reason. Amen. But when Jesus teaches us these things, to be first, you're going to be last. Last is first. To save your life, you're going to lose it. Lose your life to save it. These things seem counterintuitive. But only because we come so messed up, so backwards ourselves. Jesus is right. His teachings are good and they're right. If we lack understanding, if if they're hard to grasp, that's on our end. Not His. It's a lot easier for us, we know, to trust in our jobs, our insurance, our doctors, our savings account, other people, than it is for us to trust in God's promises. Again, because of our contrary nature. We think the secular, the temporal, that's what's real. That's that's what has substance. And the spiritual, that's that's ethereal. That's ghost-like. Not very real. We were created to trust in God and in His supernatural provision. But oftentimes, we'll pay lip service to God and His promises and put our actual faith in something or someone else. We'll pray. We'll ask God. But if God doesn't do anything, i I got a plan B set up. I'll look at my bank account. My bank account has X dollars in it. My bills are coming in at Y dollars. If X is greater than Y, Jesus is good. Jesus is providing. I have faith. If X is less than Y, where is God? Where did God go? I don't have enough money to pay my bills. Well, I better stop paying tithes so I can make the bill payment. Do I have faith in God? Or don't I? Amen. We're created. We're expected to trust in God and in His supernatural provision. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added freely unto you. Day 4. Jesus uses the rich young ruler to demonstrate to us that no one can save themselves. We all need a Savior. Jesus turns the impetus of salvation away from humanity and onto God again. Folks, you can clean up your act all you want. You can give all your money away. Dedicate your lives to Jesus, to good service, to good works. But it won't save you. It won't qualify you anymore. Now, we expect to see good works because of our salvation. That's a fruit of what God has done in my life. I don't earn my salvation because of them. People get that mixed up. I cannot qualify myself any more or any less than Jesus already qualified me. Amen. You have God's favor. You have His love. You have His invitation to relationship and covenant. And you had it when you were a sinner. 
You had it when you hated God. They have it today. They have His invitation to come. They don't have to earn anything. They don't have to clean themselves up. They don't have to get good to get God. And you didn't either. And I didn't. Praise God. There's nothing we can do to earn these things. He's already given them. He's given them freely. And because of that, there's nothing you can do to lose them. Because you could never earn them in the first place. There's nothing you can do to lose out on God's love. He's always going to love you. If you come to Him, He's always going to forgive you. Today, we understand there is a day coming where the door to the ark is going to be shut. And the God of mercy is going to become the God of justice and righteousness. And He will be our judge on that day. Day five, there are two economies, two countries that we are a part of. The temporal, this, and the eternal. That which we are seeking. When we come to Jesus, we get to trade our worthless stuff in for things of everlasting value. Sometimes we don't see it like that, though. Sometimes we think of it as a cost. I have to sacrifice these things to serve Jesus. But it's a matter of perspective, folks. How does Jesus see it? Jesus sees it as He's getting rid of your worthless things and giving you things of eternal value. That's how we need to see it. Philippians 3, 4-8. through 8. It's a little bit lengthy reading for a review, but I think it's apt. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, this is Paul speaking, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I am more. Paul saying, I had, I had the skills. I had the talent. He had everything, folks. He had intellect. He had privilege. He had every door open to him. He could do whatever he wanted to do. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. In other words, he had everything, but he realized they were worth nothing. And he traded all of them as being worth nothing. For a relationship with Jesus Christ, who he now sees as being worth everything. Amen. God will exchange those things in our lives that we think are worth something and give us things in return that actually are worth something. Amen. Our lesson today, Scripture text is Mark 10, 43 and 44, states this, But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be chiefest shall be servant of all. Most translations translate that servant as slave. Slave of all. If you want to be the President of the United States, be prepared to open your wallet. And while you're at it, you're going to need to convince a bunch of your friends to open theirs as well. Running for the office of the President of the United States is astonishingly expensive. It helps if you have lots of friends with deep pockets. 
According to OpenSecrets.org, candidates for the office of the President of the United States spend a cumulative $5.7 billion on the 2020 election campaign. $5.7 billion. That amount is more than double what presidential candidates spent in 2016. Then, Senator Joe Biden set a record by raising more than $1 billion in campaign contributions. The incumbent, President Donald Trump, raised $774 million, which would have been a record had it not been surpassed by the $1 billion that Joe Biden raised. Spending millions of dollars in an effort to take up residence at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue seems to be a losing proposition, at least fiscally. Yes, the president earns a nice annual salary, $400,000 plus Benny's, but spending nearly a billion dollars to land a job that pays far less does not make financial sense. Certainly when presidents leave office, they're usually able to parlay their experience into lucrative speaking and book deals, but that does not make up the financial difference. It takes a lot of speaking engagements for even the highest paid orators to earn a billion dollars. So why do candidates spend so much money trying to become president? The answer can sometimes be summed up in a single word. Power. The President of the United States is widely regarded as the most powerful person in the world. The Chief Executive's influence extends around the globe. The President's policy decisions impact the lives of millions of U.S. residents. Presidents can cause financial markets to fluctuate with an offhand remark. That is literally true. They can send American troops to fight on foreign battlefields with the stroke of a pen. Not constitutionally, but they can today. They may determine the fate of industries and enterprises with a single executive order. If you are the president, your name is a daily fixture in the headlines, and historians will vie for the privilege of telling your story when your time in office comes to an end. That level of power, influence, and prestige comes with a steep price tag. If you want to be the most prominent political figure in the world, it seems you need to be willing to do nearly anything to earn that privilege. Obviously, the world's idea of greatness runs contrary to Christ's teachings. We understand that. We know the world has a way different understanding of greatness than you and I do. Than Jesus does, rather. Hopefully us. How about the church at large? That's where it kind of comes home. When I was first saved, all of us new converts, we had uh, our celebrity preachers. I don't know if you guys do or ever did, but we had our favorite preachers. We'd, we'd buy all their preaching tapes at the time they were cassette tapes. <clears throat> uh, never did get into 8-track. I don't think they ever made 8-tracks, but uh, they did have cassettes. They went to CDs later. I had my favorites. One of them was Jeff Arnold. Another one was Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones, I was turned on to him at a, a conference there in, in North Carolina. He, uh, he preached a message called Go Tell John. I don't know if you've ever heard it. He's preached it before many times, I, I would imagine. But the guy was about this tall. And he had lungs. The whole thing was lungs. That's all he was, was lungs and, and a fleshly coating. Because that guy was loud. 
Well, I bought the tape. I memorized the whole thing. We would quote it. Our friends. We had our celebrity preachers. When I was in Bible school, all the ladies wanted to marry a preacher. That's what everyone wanted. A preacher. Why did they want a preacher? Yeah. Because everybody knows, everybody knows the preacher is it. Everybody loves the preacher. Everybody, yeah, they get to they get to make the big decisions. They get to call the shots. They're, they're the ones that are out in front in charge. Everyone loves the preacher. They get to hear them and and for about an hour a week. Maybe that's sometimes true. The other 167 hours a week is quite a bit different. It's quite a bit different. In our organization, the pastor is the pinnacle. Evangelist, if you're an evangelist, that's okay until you can find a pastorate. It's okay to evangelize, but we're looking for a pastorate. Teaching, I mean, that's not even considered. You're a teacher. Several years later, several years later, I was talking to my pastor about, I felt a call of God. I was thinking about getting licensed. And, and uh, he's like, well, what do you feel like your ministry is? I was like, I really don't know. Because if it's teaching, you don't need a license for that. You can just go teach. And I was like, well, yeah, I suppose that's true. I can teach without a license, but the the unsaid presupposition there, if I can use those terms, was that the preacher was higher status than the teacher. That's what the that's what the unsaid un, unspoken second part of that was. If you're a preacher, yeah, we'll get you licensed and we'll we'll start using you. But if you're just a teacher, well then, I mean, we can just we can just start doing stuff with that. And I was like, uh, okay, he's my pastor. What am I going to say? Okay, submit myself. I submitted myself. <clears throat> and that's submission. Doing what he said when you don't agree with it. I didn't agree with it, but I submitted to it. Serving under someone. Ugh. Are you kidding? At ABI, back in the day when uh, Brother S.G. Norris was the president, I, was, I wasn't there when S.G. Norris was alive, but I heard... I. I've heard tell by many people that when he graduated preachers, he told them, you're a pastor. Go get a pastorate. You don't serve under someone. And I wasn't there. I didn't hear the man say that. If he did say it, I don't know in what context he said that. But here's what I do know. In our organization, generally speaking, that idea seems to be there. 
it seems to be there, and I don't like it. I don't think it's scriptural. I don't think it lines up with the Bible. I don't think it lines up with Christ's teachings concerning servitude. I'm not here to get a position. I'm here to advance Christ's position. I'm not here for a promotion. I'm promoting someone else. And I'll do that any way He wants me to do that. If He calls me to a higher position, fantastic. God protect me from pride. God protect me from being arrogant in that position. He wants to do it through my humility and my obscurity. Well, praise God. In a lot of ways, that's a whole lot easier. But however He wants me to do it. Have you ever had a brilliant idea and then tried to explain explain your brilliant idea to someone? And when you spoke it out, it sounded really not so brilliant anymore? And you're like, that sounded a whole lot better in, in my head. Now that I've actually said it, I never mind. <laughs> well, me. That might be what uh, James and John were thinking. When they were talking about who should be greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus heard it. Well, that doesn't sound so good anymore. This idea of who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Who's the closest to Jesus? Who's the most spiritual? Who preaches, sings, plays at the most conferences? And we can even put it into the secular. Students, who has the best grades? Who's the most popular? Adults, who makes the most money? Who drives the nicest car? Who has the biggest or nicest home? Now, is there anything wrong with pursuing good grades? Of course there's not. Is there anything wrong with seeking a promotion at work? I hope not. I always did. I think it's good for the child of God to seek more responsibility, secular or spiritual. I think that's a good thing. But focusing on that, finding my identity wrapped up in that, is not good. It's true that all of us want to be in the conversation when people are discussing greatness. We all do. Secretly or overtly. Most people, a lot of people, people we know, will spend money that they don't have, time they don't have, to impress people they don't even like. Why is that? They walk up on the street and tell them they don't like something about them. They couldn't care less. I, don't, I hardly even know you. But they still want that person to know how successful they are. They still want that person to know how much money I make. Especially us men. 
us men, that, that really that can really be a snare in our lives. Nothing wrong to be proud in, at the work you do. Do good work. Absolutely. Do the best work you can. Whatsoever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. That's scriptural. That pleases God. That's a good witness. But, if your identity is wrapped up in that, folks, your identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. That's who we identify with. That's my identity. Anything else is peripheral. Anything else is secondary. I'm still going to do the best I can. But my identity is in Jesus Christ. Interestingly, Jesus does not rebuke them for their desire to excel. If any man desire to be first, this is what you have to do. The desire to be first doesn't seem to be inherently wrong. So pursue excellence. Absolutely. In everything that you do, every, every area of your life, pursue excellence. But, this is what you must do. If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Mark 9.35 Then after that, Jesus takes a child in His arms and verse 37 says, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in My name receiveth Me. And whosoever shall receive Me receiveth not Me, but him that sent Me. Children. Children don't usually worry and obsess about the things that adults worry and obsess over. Who was here at church last Sunday? Who wasn't? They're not going to go tell the Sunday school teacher that the lesson was perfectly crafted. Thank you. Or... It was almost good, but here's some, here's some areas for improvement. They're typically not going to do that. The best they'll get is, oh, it was good. Or, nah, I didn't really like it. Did you see what sister so-and-so was wearing? They really don't care about that. They were wearing clothes. Yeah, I saw that. So was I. <laughs> Yeah, me too. They do notice and care about other things, though. Whether or not we show genuine love and concern. If we're being real with them or a fake. They can tell who cares and who doesn't care. And they'll respond accordingly. Children cannot usually repay the love that we show them. If you look at most churches, I would be willing to wager cash money if I were a betting man. I'm not. But if I were, I would be willing to wager cash money that their biggest offering would not come from the toddler class. And there's a good reason for that. Toddlers don't make money. People spend money on toddlers. They consume money. They consume resources. A lot of them. Amen. That's their job. That's what they do, and they do it well. Ministering to children requires so much and seems to return so little and will rarely bring earthly recognition or reward. 
I'm going to talk just a moment about teachers, teachers of children particularly. It has been my experience. I've been to several churches. I had to make a list of my previous pastors recently. I was surprised how many there were. It's a big list. And uh, so I've been to several churches. I've been a part of several churches. And in every, just about every single one of them, the Sunday school teacher was kind of a spur of the moment. We need someone, we need a body down there. Can you do it? I understand why. I know the alternative is to cancel the class altogether, probably. And people are loath to do that. But let me explain something about teachers, particularly our Sunday school teachers. They're teaching our children. They are modeling, they are exampling, they are discipling our children. This is an extremely important task. The qualifications for a Sunday school teacher is not, can you fog this mirror? It's not, are you breathing today? Can you make it here every Sunday? That's literally some of the requirements that some of the churches I've been in have. The teachers themselves, their lives are a train wreck. But they're down there or up there or in there teaching my children how to serve Jesus Christ. Exampling who Jesus is to them. No. No, I would rather not have a Sunday school than put someone in there like that. It's an important task. And when we say that the Sunday school teacher is typically a ministry of obscurity, stuffed away in a corner somewhere, down in the basement, teaching the kids. And you're not going to see anything from that until much later on, typically. It's typically thankless. Again, depending on the age of the kids, they're not going to say anything. They're just happy to get the treats, spend time with friends, move on to the next activity. the Sunday school teacher. I see that as a pastoral ministry, folks. They are pastoring that congregation of children. That's how I see it. The teacher has a burden for that that class, that group. They're praying. They're fasting. They're spending time with those children. They understand what's going on. That's a ministry, folks. That's a ministry of servitude. That Sunday school teacher is serving those children without recognition, without fame. They're not up here getting all the glory. But in the kingdom of heaven, folks, I think a lot of us are going to be surprised 
as to who gets what. Who receives what reward. I think a lot of these guys aren't going to receive as much as people think. That's just my personal opinion. And Sunday school teachers, Bible study teachers, faithful parents, faithful spouses. I think they're going to receive a whole lot more than people think. In any case, Jesus says the true greatness is showing kindness to others in a spirit of humility. Jesus' definition of greatness is not ours. As much as we try, as much as we hate it, the world does rub off on us, folks. Their ideas, their philosophies, they rub off on us. Especially when we're bombarded with it day and night, 24-7. So it behooves us then to stay in the Word of God, to stay in prayer, to stay sanctified and separate from these things. Because if we don't, we start adopting their mentality. We start adopting the world's ideas of right and wrong. We see churches more and more ordaining homosexual ministers. All of a sudden, that's okay now. The Bible hasn't changed, folks. I'm just pointing out one sin. I could, I could list any sin. Homosexuality isn't any more or any less sin than, than gluttony. Whoops. Yeah, that's a sin too, folks. I have nothing in my notes on it. I'm not going to do anything more with that. But, but sin is sin, folks. All of it. Greatness, true greatness, is showing kindness to others in a spirit of humility. Volunteering to teach the Sunday school class no one else wants to teach. Changing dirty diapers and wiping runny noses in the church nursery without complaining. It's blisters and calluses at the all-church work day. Showing up for prayer meeting after a long day at work when you really just want to go home. And may I say, concerning our Tuesday evening prayer, there are, there are uh, many that show up after work Tired, uh, very tired. And I, I just, not that it matters either way, but I just, I want you to know that I see that and I respect that. I respect the snot out of that. I hope that's okay to say. <clears throat> I do. I respect that all the way through. I appreciate that. And I believe, I believe with all my heart, God blesses that. Amen. It's remaining faithful to a struggling marriage with an unsaved spouse. It's responding to hate with kindness and choosing reconciliation over retaliation. We need a servant's heart, folks. We need to get to the place where we can willingly, joyfully submit ourselves one to another in service to each other. Pastor Erwin Lutzer, I've never heard the name, uh, but he is quoted as saying this, How do you know you have a servant's heart? Take a look at your reaction when you're treated like one. Nobody wants to be or feel inferior to someone else. Nobody likes that. 
No one grows up getting really excited about being someone's servant. I want to be a doctor. I want to be an airplane pilot. Firefighter. Nobody likes being someone's servant. But again, what perspective do we have? If we're placed in the position of a servant, Jesus says we've achieved greatness. Can we see it like that? The desire for position. When James and John wanted special positions next to Jesus, he responded by saying, you don't know what you're asking for. And that's true of most people that seek positions. They see one aspect of it. Like Brother DeMuth said, the glory of it. That's all they see. They don't see everything else behind the scenes. The 99% of the work. The sacrifice. The disappointment. I'm not talking about this position. I'm talking about any leadership position. Any position someone might aspire to. It looks great. That'd be awesome. I would love that. I would love to do that job. I would love to do that. Be in that position. But we don't know what it is we're asking for. We can't. We can't know. Because we've never been there. We can ask people that are there or have been there. Get the real skinny on it. Most people are guilty of seeing only the perks of certain positions while conveniently or maybe ignorantly overlooking the sacrifices and struggles that happen behind the scenes. People want to be the leader until a crisis arises. And then we're content to sit back and second-guess the person in charge while breathing a sigh of relief that it's not us. Amen. Armchair quarterbacks. I love them. Mm, mm, mm. Why did that guy do that? That guy sort of ran faster. That guy sort of caught that ball. What's, what's his problem? Could you catch that ball? Well, granted, I mean, the guy's probably not getting $50 million either. Pay someone $50 million, I suppose you better catch the ball. But, uh, but on the other hand, I just think it's kind of funny. Anyway. It's easy to become frustrated. Most everyone desires to excel, especially in ministry. Especially in the ministry God has given to us. We want to excel. We want to move forward in ministry. Whatever plan, whatever, uh, whatever God has called us to do, we want to move forward in that. Absolutely. I think that's good. I think that's right. That's healthy. It's easy to become frustrated when it seems like God is overlooking me while promoting others. I understand feeling like that. I felt like that for decades. I get it. Others have felt like that. We have no idea where God is wanting to take us and what it will take to get us ready to get there. See, that's the problem. That's, that's the rub. I want to move forward. I want to be doing this, that, and the other. I don't know what that's going to require of me. 
I don't know the sacrifices I'm going to have to make when I get there. I don't know, I don't know the, the skills or the abilities I'm going to need to do those things. God does. God knows the whole thing. And so, wisdom tells me that while I'm here, right here, right now, where God planted me, I need to let God develop me. It's better to bloom where He plants us than to be destroyed by being promoted too quickly. I have seen. Eh, I won't mention the name. I have seen individuals. I'm thinking of one in particular. I'm sure you would know. Most of you would know the name if I said it. In any case, this guy was in River Falls a long time ago where I was going to church. And uh, amazing, amazing guy. Just a, a very gregarious. Everyone loved him. Never met a stranger. Uh, when he preached, he preached the house down. Lots of natural talent. Just, I knew he was going to do great things for God. I just, you could tell. God, God's hand was on him. And, and our pastor at the time, Brother Tim, Tim Olson, he, he said, no, not yet. You're not ready to go. He wanted to, he wanted to go off. He was on fire. He, I got all this talent. I got all this ability. And, and I, I, need, I need to get going. I need to use it. I mean, he'd been in church for like a year and a half. So, I mean, new convert. No experience. He hadn't been through anything yet. But he had to get going. Well, he couldn't wait. He couldn't listen to his pastor. He went somewhere else, found a pastor that would start using him. And he became a national hit. And then, after a divorce, after a church split... I don't know what he's doing now, but he's not pastoring. I think he's a life coach now. You can see the writing on the wall, folks. And that's an extreme example. I understand that. Uh, But the point remains. Let God develop you where you're at. I had to learn this lesson. I'm so glad I did. When you just stop fretting, when you stop... It's like a burning itch inside. That's how I describe it. Anyone ever have athlete's foot? I think I've used this analogy before. Yeah, yuck, right? That burning itch. I feel like that sometimes in my spirit. That burning itch. I get get this crazy idea. I, I, I really want to do this. I, I, I really think I need to be pursuing that and get all frustrated when, when things keep closing and things keep holding me back. And I get frustrated and I get uh, upset and, and all of these things. But when I learn to just relax and not worry about that, that's God's business. I'm going to let God deal with that. He put me here today, right now, in this moment. This is where I'm at. I'm here by His His command, His will. I believe that. And so while I'm here, right now, today, I'm going to do everything I can to grow. I'm going to do everything I can to serve Him, to serve His people. And uh, when I do that, 
then when it's time, God will release me. God will release you. And it will happen organically and just easily. Instead of, I know people, they can, they can, they can force doors open and they can, they can just push forward and, and they'll go through anything, any disappointment, any frustration. They'll just keep going until they get what they want. And sometimes I really envy that, that ability. But other times I'm like, ugh, you're getting hurt, dude. <laughs> you keep running into brick walls with that thick head of yours. That's got to hurt. So, if we can learn to just let go of that and, and anyway, I think I made the point. Wait patiently on God. Serve the kingdom by serving others. We're here to promote His kingdom. We're here to promote His work, not ours. Not my own name or brand or whatever. And we, we need only look to Jesus' example to see what He was trying to teach us. Amen. He did the same thing. He knew He was God, certainly at age 13. He knew what His mission was. But He waited. He developed. I suppose in some aspects He was in no hurry to get to that mission. <clears throat> but uh, we know it's not true because it says that he looked forward to it with joy. The cross. Amen. We are servants. And we are at our greatest. We are promoted the highest in God's kingdom. When we serve, when we can have a servant's heart, amen. One of the greatest illustrations of servanthood is found in John 13, at what Christians usually call the Last Supper. After sharing a meal with his twelve disciples, Jesus surprised them all by taking off his outer garments and wrapping a towel, the attire of a common household servant, around his waist. He then poured water into a basin, stooped down, and began to wash his disciples' grime-covered feet. The disciples were shocked at this role reversal. Washing feet was considered a menial task, far beneath the dignity of an esteemed teacher like Jesus. Peter was especially indignant. Thou shalt never wash my feet, he insisted. But Peter did not understand why Jesus was doing what he was doing. This was about much more than just cleaning feet. Jesus was preparing to shed his blood on the cross for the spiritual cleansing that Peter and the rest of the disciples so desperately needed. When Jesus finished making his way around the table, he put his outer robe back on and once again took a seat. Then he asked, Know ye what I have done to you? John did not record the disciples' reaction to Jesus' question. Perhaps their only response was a blank stare, shock evident in their eyes. Maybe they were already beginning to grasp the uncomfortable implications of Jesus' actions. If the Son of God was willing to assume the role of the lowest household servant, what did that mean for me? How far should I be willing to stoop? Then Jesus broke the silence by answering his own question. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. 
As they heard Jesus' words, perhaps James and John thought back to their earlier request to be seated at the Lord's left and right hand. Maybe they flushed with embarrassment, realizing how silly their ambitions must have seemed to Jesus. Or maybe this realization came after Jesus resurrected from the dead and they had time to process everything that had happened. One thing is certain, the disciples eventually did grasp the message Jesus wanted to convey. They spent their lives serving others and establishing the church Jesus envisioned. Eventually, they even gave their lives as martyrs for the sake of the gospel, save one. In both life and death, the disciples illustrated the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 5-7. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Amen. May God put it in our hearts that we would be willing to do the same for Him and for each other. Amen. Let's all stand. Jesus, we worship and we praise You this morning. I thank You. I thank You. I thank You for the example that You've laid out for us in Scripture. You didn't give us just words. You didn't give us just teaching and, and, and things that we follow because of what you said, although we do, and, and we delight ourselves in the words that you gave us, but also in your actions, the example that you lived out every day for your disciples, for those who were present during your earthly ministry. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that we would take your words to heart, that we would take your actions to heart. If you then, our Lord and Master, can do these things, we ought also to do the same. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray, with pride, with arrogance, whatever it is we may be struggling with. If we are struggling with them, give us a servant's heart, I pray. Help us to serve, to esteem others better than ourselves, to put others' cares and concerns above our own, yours most certainly. Above all else, Lord, that your name would be glorified in our lives, in us, and through us. Bless the remainder of our service and these things we ask.